Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. For those of you that are new to the podcast, please do me two quick favors. One is be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And two, if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So, yo, I'm really excited about this episode. I mean, I feel that way about every one that I put out, but each one is unique. And I'd say about my guest today, of all the business people that I know that are up and coming in their careers, he's in the he's on the short list of most likely to make the cover of Forbes. He's a really brilliant man and business mind and marketer, and it's coupled with serious ambition and hard work. Um, all topped off with you know loads of intelligence. Like he's a pretty special dude in, in this space and his his uh, startup has actually taken off quite a bit um, I'm not going to tell too much of his story I won't let you guys hear it all but it really speaks to the power of curiosity combined with ambition you know if you're curious you look beyond the surface and you understand what's really happening behind a phenomenon in our society because all successful businesses are based on a secret so you, as a, as a business person, as an aspiring entrepreneur, it's important to figure out, like, what's going on under the surface? What's, what's happening that not everyone could see? So you could unlock that secret and then take that secret and turn it into a thriving company. So I won't belabor the point. Let's get into it. Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on? My name is Julius Bryant, uh, based in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm the founder and CEO of Jack's Rideshare Rentals. Founder, CEO, doing doing big things. You know, a lot of people throw that term around, like you start a company and just say you're the CEO, but I actually know you're making like legitimate moves. Y'all just hit a pretty big milestone recently too, didn't you? We did, yeah. Just, uh, I think it was the week before last, we crossed uh, a million in sales, so um, you know, small in the, the grand scheme of, of business in general, but um, huge accomplishment for us, um, you know, just being two guys, myself and my co-founder who, you know, found ourselves in corporate jobs that we uh, didn't necessarily enjoy and decided to, you know, embark on this this thing, this journey uh, of entrepreneurship. So, you know, just us two. And then we've we've hired our first employee as of a few months ago. But uh, for the most part, really just us two were able to cross that milestone. So very happy to to have been been able to do that. And, uh, you know, that's this is really just the beginning. We plan on doing a lot more. Absolutely. And look, man, like I get it. You are a genuinely humble dude, but hitting a million dollars in, in revenue is not a small deal. And it's, it's things tend to tend to grow, you know, by an order of magnitude. So getting that first million is the hardest. And now, mm-hmm. you know, you dig into you dig into the, the numbers and the insights you'll be able to figure out how to turn that million into 10 million in revenue. Yeah, then you'll be off to the race. Yeah, for sure. That's the goal. I mean, um, if we can really just double down and, you know, stay focused, um, keep our core uh, value prop at the center of everything we do, I think um, we're well positioned to do that. So it's just about continuing to put in the work and um, not letting up. It's It's hard to, um, you know, to keep your foot on the, on the gas when you feel like you're winning. Right. I think that's uh, extremely difficult. Um, yeah. but, uh, you gotta, you know, even, even if you feel like you're in first place, you gotta, you know, you gotta run like there's someone in front of you still. So uh, that's what we're planning on doing. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about what Jack's ride share is, but let, let's pause before we do that. And you just brought up something I thought that's really compelling. How do you, how do you go about keeping, uh, your foot on the pedal? when you feel like you're winning? Like, basically, how do you guard against complacency? Yeah, um, it's tough, man. Like, even before before I was doing this full-time, you know, I had went to business school and um, finished business school at Emory, uh, got a job uh, in corporate at Amazon, and, you know, was super comfortable. I mean, I had everything I, I needed, for sure, and, and very much of what I wanted. So even in that situation, it would have been really easy to just be complacent. Um, but I kind of use, um, the idea of freedom as my North star. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to be able to achieve optimal freedom. And it's one of those things where I think it's impossible to be completely free, 
Um, I think uh, I think it was Nina Nina Simone who said it. Who she said, um, "Freedom is the absence of fear," and mm. I think um, I agree with that. I agree with what she said, and I think that um, although we can chase freedom, right? We can chase the optimal absence of fear. Um, there's something about having a little bit of fear that gets you up in the morning, though. Still, right? Like, you know, you you need money to uh to pay your bills right something as right. simple as that will keep someone working a job or have someone afraid to lose that job um so they can continue to support themselves so i think um and that's just one example but i, I think it's not really possible to, to achieve um true freedom but even having said that it's one thing that i'll continue to chase every day knowing i'll ne- never catch it and i'll just become perpetually closer to it yeah um, I, yeah one of the things that i think about too is can you truly ever catch it and hold it? It's not like a it's not like a right. permanent state of being, right? So one of mm-hmm. the, the blessings is just having the opportunity to pursue it as opposed to being trapped in poverty or yeah. in prison or anything that would keep keep anyone from being able to chase their dreams. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have the opportunity to go out here and pursue this and chase it, um, to to pursue freedom that in and of itself is a victory, right? And that you're not yeah. controlled by fear. So a lot of people don't even try. Like they would have just stayed at Amazon, nice and safe, yeah. you know, and would have mm-hmm. just, you know, they would have let fear be so overwhelming in their life that they would have never pursued it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I realize that I'm, I'm privileged in the, the sense that I can even think about being free, right? Some people wake up in the morning and they don't have enough money to get through the end of the day, right? And they got to go out there and hustle and get it every single day. So I'm, I'm privileged in that regard um, that I can even think that way. Um, but that just goes back to um, kind of the initial point around complacency, knowing that there's more to be achieved. There are people out there who are much more free than I am. Even, even having been able to leave, you know, a comfortable six figure salary and go out and do this business and, you know, travel and do all the things I've done. Like I've achieved some freedom in those rights, but I know that there's more um, that I have not achieved yet. So that's really, you know, my North star and, and how I avoid complacency because I'm not as free as I would like to be. Um, so I, I just continue to chase that every single day. That's, that's what's up, man. Well, I'm glad that you're able to do it and you seem to be doing it quite well. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about what Jack's rideshare rentals does. Like what, what, what's your business and what's the what makes you different? Yeah. Um, so at our core, we are a rental car company. Um, we're a vehicle marketplace that's um, geared specifically towards gig workers. Um, so people who are doing ride hailing, i.e. Uber Lyft, um, delivery work, um, furniture assembly, and a, a bunch of other things in the gig space um, that need vehicles to do that work. Mm. Um, so we specifically cater to that audience. Um, and there's people all over Atlanta. We're just in Atlanta right now, but also in other places who um, are effectively excluded from that type of work because they don't have access to a qualifying vehicle. So um, if you talk about with the ride hailing companies, mm-hmm. um, they have parameters around um, the, the body type. Right. So if you have a pickup truck, for example, then you can't drive for Uber or Lyft, obviously. Um model year right so if your car is too old then um then you can't use it and then obviously some people don't have vehicles at all so um so our customer base is a mixed bag of people who kind of fit um in those buckets and and also people who who do have cars um that qualify and would just rather not use them for gig work because you rack up Mm -hmm. a bunch of miles and maintenance expenses and things like that so anybody who falls in any one of those buckets can um come rent a vehicle from us and then use it to go uh, make some money through the gig economy. Mm-hmm. That's what's up. It, the, the thing that I find, I was having a conversation the other day about, uh, it's not about just coming up with marketing ideas just in a vacuum uh, or mm-hmm. business ideas in a vacuum and trying to like be brilliant. Because I think what what would have happened if someone else was thinking about, you know, the gig economy, they're like, I'm going to make another Uber. I'm going to make another mm-hmm. DoorDash. I'm going to make another fill in the blank, you know, gig economy app. You yep. took a step back and like, look, gig economy is real. 
it's not going anywhere and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. Where can I like play in that value chain? And, you know, you look at the, no pun intended, the drivers of the gig economy are the individuals who actually get behind these vehicles and go out and, you know, pick up these orders and kind of, they do the work or pick up these riders and drop them off where they need to be. So do you focus on what they needed? I'm I'm Mm -hmm. just reverse engineering, right? What you, what you just played out, I just think is brilliant because it's something that I think most people would have never even thought of. So like, Tell me about how you how you came up with the idea of like, all right, I'm going to figure out how do I make things better for drivers? Yeah, so um, the idea honestly came kind of on accident. Um, so I was in um, business school, went to uh, school at Emory down here in Atlanta um, and was is, was nearing the end of my first year of business school was in full-time program. So two year program, you do a, a summer internship um, between the first and second year, and then you come back and, and finish up the second year. So I'm nearing the end of my, my first year and still figuring out what I want to do for my internship. And I had actually connected with this guy. I, I wanted to work at Twitter really bad. So I had connected with this guy who, who was at Twitter. Um, and we were having like a bunch of, you know, informal conversation back and forth uh, on LinkedIn or whatever. And, uh, you know, finally he was like, well, you know, just if you want to work here, like book a flight and come out here and let's talk. So, um, so I skipped a week of school. I I went out to the West coast and on my way to San Fran to meet this guy, I actually, um, stopped in LA for a few days to hang out with, um, some friends and, um, yeah. (laughs) Um, one of those friends, um, actually played professional basketball overseas. Um, this was back in like 2016, I want to say 15, 16, somewhere in there. Um, and he was telling me that, uh, there's this platform that he uses called, uh, Turo, um, where, and, you know, I think most people probably have at least heard of Turo at this point, but back then it was, it was a lot newer. Um, but he was saying that when he goes overseas to play ball, he rents out his car on Turo to make a little bit of extra money. Mm. Um, so I took that and I started just doing a little bit more research on the space, on the peer-to-peer rental space. Um, so I, you know, I ended up going to San Fran, coming back to Atlanta, and I met with who's now my business partner. He was one of my classmates at Emory. And I was telling him about this peer-to-peer car rental space. And I was like, why don't we go buy uh, a cheap car and you know, just rent it out to make a little bit of extra money? So we did that. We went and bought a 2010 Volkswagen Jetta. I think we spent like five or six grand. It was an old beater. Um, but we, we bought that car. And we we use one of those peer to peer services to start renting it out. Um, And I assume that it would be akin to a normal, you know, a short term car runner, right? Like somebody would come rent the car, they would keep it for two or three days um, and then they would bring it back. Um, So we rented the car and uh, I think the renter initially booked it for like two days and she kept extending the rental and she had the car for like three weeks. so I'm curious. I'm like, why is she keeping this car so long? So I pick up the phone and call her and ask her, it's like, what, what, what are you doing with this car that, that you've had it for three weeks? And she was saying that she, uh, she wrecked her car in an accident and it was still, you know, going through the insurance process or whatever at the body shop. And she's like, but I was doing Uber with the car. So I needed to rent a car. Um, so I could do Uber in the meantime while my car is being fixed. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the light bulb moment. I was like, wow, I wonder if there are other people who, for one reason or another, need to rent a vehicle uh, for a period of time so they can use it to go make money through uh, through gig work. So um, long story short, we she actually ended up totaling that car like, <laughs> like the next week. So um, that was a whole different thing. But <laughs> we ended up just, uh, buying another car and same thing, was rented out for a nice little duration of time. And we bought another one and another one and we just continued on that path. Um, and here we are today and we have, um, you know, we, we purchased over a hundred vehicles. So, um, wow. it's just, uh, continues to grow, but it, really the business was born out of, out of that kind of unrealized necessity that people, um, need this service and that people, you know, are excluded from, from that type of work because of, of vehicle access. Right. Right. Well, well, first of all, salute to you for being so damn curious right like like hey let's let's go let's put put in five six g's and go buy this car and kind of 
mm-hmm. just kind of see what happens. You know, people always want to figure out how do you how do you become the next great entrepreneur? How do you become the next great whatever? But they want it all to be like convenient and easy. And they don't want to, they're not curious. They don't want to invest any time or energy or resources just for the purpose of learning. But then beyond that, I think that what came out of that, the reward, I think, for that early curiosity was this unlocking of this deep human truth, which is for a segment of our society, primary or one of the best jobs or easiest jobs they can get to create economic value for their family is to participate in the gig economy. Yep. But then that startup capital, the down payment for a car, being able to pay a car note for a car that qualifies is really, really yep. difficult. So yep. I, I just think it's, I think it's brilliant, like how such a big idea was hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the curiosity was really the key to, to kind of getting us to where we are for, for both me and my partner. Um, I always say like, I don't think, um, you know, I think I'm a reasonably bright guy, but I don't think I'm just so much smarter than anybody else. Like I think anybody who was curious enough and, you know, had the bandwidth and the work ethic to, to even experiment with something like this could have done this. Um, so I just think that's really important to really just always be, you know, invested in being curious. I think, that that investment um will will unlock gains for you in, in ex- exponential measures if you just you know continue to be curious and and have interest in learning new stuff right right salute to that and so uh pivoting a little bit you know you and i met gosh i don't even know is years ago is when I you was were 2014 15 somewhere in there when yeah. i when i was going through the business school uh, process. Yeah, yeah, and I remember being uh, a little salty when uh, you didn't come to Michigan, but also <laughs> being supportive too. Is the first you're you're one of the first people I ever met who uh, you know didn't come to Michigan, but we actually remained in touch. And even on another project I was working on, we collaborated really closely. Um, yeah, but I remember being a little like. Uh, and to be honest, a part of me was a little salty, like on our end, like I felt like as a school, we could have done a little more to try and get you, but we lost you to Emory in my mind. But it turns mm-hmm. out it absolutely was the best thing for you, right? So you go yeah. down here, you have this amazing experience, and then you meet your business partner. And while you're yeah. down there, you're able to incubate this idea. Now you're off and running. All of these dominoes kind of flow from this decision to uh, go to Emory which uh, mm-hmm. seems, seems to have worked out really well. But so as we pivot, I want to help people understand like who you are and how you became you. Like how do you become the CEO founder of Jack's Rideshare, which has already now crossed the million dollar revenue threshold and like growing, you know, kind of at this really strong rate. Let's, let's, let's take a step back, man. Like, like where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so um, originally from Lansing, Michigan, um, small town uh, right around the center of Michigan, about an hour uh, west of Detroit. Um, so grew up there, spent my, my formative years there. And um, really, I've just always been a hustler. Like, I w- I've always been trying to figure out ways to make money. So I can remember from my earliest days, um, you know, taking a shovel out of my parents garage and walking around the neighborhood and trying to shovel people's driveways in the, in the winter to make some extra money or um rake leaves in in the fall and stuff like that is you know as early as probably six or seven right because i just i think early on i realized the power of money right like the more mm-hmm. that you had the more freedom and it wasn't even about like acquiring material things but it was like the more freedom the more money i have the more freedom the more optionality i have i think i learned that very early on so i kind of started there and then even up through middle and high school i had a a set of different hustles so um in that time uh people were uh, carrying around the next cell phones right so um i was very early on ebay um and i had found uh like a you know it was a a cable basically just a, a cord that you could use um to transition ringtones or mp3 files make them into ringtones and then transition them onto uh a next deal, right so huh. um i was doing i was doing that but that came by way of me 
um, I was selling like mix CDs at the same time, right? So I would go to school, <laughs> I would have a notebook, I would have all my friends write down, you know, 12 or 15 songs that they wanted on the CD. I would come home, I would download those on Napster and put them on the CD. So that was the first hustle. And then that transitioned into the ringtones because I already had the music. I just needed to be able to, right. you know, to transition them to ringtones. So I downloaded the software, uh, bought that cable. I would sell my friends ringtones. Um, back then, people were uh, really big into, I mean, they were really counterfeit Jordans, but people were ordering all these Jordans and, you know, um, getting them in different colors that you couldn't get them at, at Foot Locker or whatever. So right. I had actually found um, a manufacturer in China. And mind you, I'm like 14 or 15 at this time. I don't even know how I found these people, but uh, I found a manufacturer in China who was making these knockoff Jordans. Um, so I would order those in bulk and I would sell them to my friends at, you know, I would basically undercut Foot Locker and, and sell those to my friends. Um, I, I did all kind of stuff. I, I started right. making t-shirts and master shoes. Like I did some of everything. So that was kind of like my formative years between middle school, high school. Um, I go to college. I went to Central Michigan in, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which is about an hour north of where I grew up. Um, wait, and wait, I wait. Almost I'm, did- I'm sorry. Wait. Let, me, let, me, let me hop in for a second for you. Yeah. Get into your college years. I want to go back. Okay. Mad impressive. Like, so, so the curiosity thing is like evident, right? We already mm-hmm. talked about it a bit with how you came upon the idea for Jack's Rideshare. Yep. Um, you've always been curious, but there's there's a there's two other things that are happening. One, there's there's the ambition, which on its surface, you know, seems really evident. Like you want freedom, time yep. is money. So if you have money, you then can can control your time or basically buy your time back. Yeah, you know, exactly. so you don't have to go get a job working for someone else, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's where the ambition comes from. So curiosity, ambition. But then yep. there's a work ethic. Like beyond just being curious, like having a thought come in your head and like go out your head, like you followed up and you were talking with manufacturers over in China or you were taking time to learn how to use software to yep. create ringtones. You're, like your friends, theoretically, they could have went and downloaded the music off of Napster as well and burned it to a CD. But mm-hmm you had to work ethic and grind to go make that happen. So t- talk to us a little bit about uh, your work ethic and where, like, where did that come from? Was, was it, you know, I know Lansing is a blue collar town. Was it just the environment you grew up in? Was it someone in particular in your family or is just, was it just innate in you? Like wh- where, where do you think your work ethic came from? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, so I think it probably came from a multitude of sources, right? So, um, the first answer is my parents, right? Like my parents always, I have, I was fortunate. I have both, both parents in the house and, um, they both worked and they both were very, um, I would say reasonable and responsible from a financial perspective. So mm-hmm. I had the, the financial literacy, I guess I kind of had that part, um, from just seeing it, um, from my parents. And then the work ethic came by kind of by virtue, right? Because I just saw them uh, work hard to make sure me and my my sister had what we needed. So I think that was probably the earliest sign of it um, that I picked up on when I was, you know, before I even really understood fully. But I I, could, I remember seeing that still. Um, I think I was an athlete in high school. So mm. um, and I took that very seriously at the time. I was the captain of my football team and, and stuff like that. So, um, okay. yeah. So in addition to just being put in that position and having to lead by example, I just wanted to be really good at, at my position and, and, um, be able to display that skill on Friday nights on game day. So that was part of it too. Just, you know, having that, the athlete pedigree, um, right. Alongside of the work ethic that I had just seen from my parents. I think those are probably the two, the two biggest thing that led to um, the work ethic that I still, you know, carry with me to this day. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, I mean, I think the the parent thing is super evident, right? I think, you know, having it would be it would be hard for me to to fathom someone arguing against the benefit of having both parents in your life, in your home, demonstrating, mm-hmm. you know, and like modeling behavior, what it looks like to be uh 
a productive adult. You know, that's just, that just goes without saying. I think the piece that a lot of people miss and I preach a lot about is the benefits of athletics as part of development of of a young person's character. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I have a, I think a bit of a nuanced approach, like no hate on professional athletes. Like I think they're, you know, amazing at what they do and I want them to get all the money they could get. But my, my love of sports is not really about trying to get young people around me to make it to the league. If that's their dream, then that's what I want for them. But my yeah. love of sports and my kind of, you know, I go out and I uh, spread the gospel of having young people play any sport that's competitive uh, mm-hmm. is what it brings out of you from a work ethic standpoint. Like if you want something, you have to go grind and go get it. You just can't lay around and be complacent and you have to outwork your competitor, whether it's a one-on-one sport or whether it's a team sport, you have to go outwork the people you're going up against. You know, I, rem- yep. I remember uh, a, a situation that has stuck with me forever. Really short story. We played LA Jordan. I grew up in LA. And so we play LA mm-hmm. Jordan one week in football and LA Jordan. That's uh that's the high school. Remember minister society? Yeah, yeah. That's the high school they were at. Like it's and it's the okay. school that's like in the projects, literally. And you know, you know, the whole reputation around these dudes being tough and rough and you know, in that street life, I won't even pretend like they weren't. But on the football yeah. field, you know, we're able to give give these dudes the business. Mm-hmm. The next week we play Long Beach Wilson. Long Beach Wilson is on like the north side of Long Beach, pretty nice neighborhood upper middle class, a lot of white kids on the team. And these dudes came out, man, and they beat the dogs not out of us for four quarters. <laughs> not just on the mm-hmm. scoreboard, like physically. Every play, they outworked us for four quarters. And at the end of it, we were completely and totally dominated. And so that always always stuck with me. And that was something I learned through sports. A, is like, you, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. But beyond yeah. its cover, what ultimately matters is who's going to show up and who's going to do the work. And we didn't work hard enough that week. And when the ball kicked off that Friday night against Long Beach Wilson, we didn't work hard enough on the football field. And them boys came to work and they outworked us on every single play. And that's something that you can't experience in theory. You can't experience, you know, in a classroom reading books. You have to get out there and put that physical sweat equity in uh, to learn that lesson. Now, you don't have to play football. You can you can learn to play an individual sport like running track. You know, and mm-hmm. there's there's all these different ways, but I think there's there's a lot of value in sports in development of character, and in particular in development developing work ethic. So I still yeah, have that. No, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of lessons that are to be learned um, in sports, and there, and you know, there's other stuff outside of you know athletics as well. But like just being part of a team and being able to be in a situation where it's it's very clear to see that the the work you put in using high school football as an example the, the the work you put on put in in practice Monday through Thursday is a direct re- reflection of how you perform on Friday so for me that's translated directly to business and even like the conditioning part of sports right like you got to be mm-hmm. in the weight room if you're playing football and it's going to hurt like you're going to walk out of there <laughs> right. limping sometimes and barely be able to raise your arms, but um, you'll be better for that on Friday nights. And it's the same in business. Like you have to just prepare, 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 whatever that looks like for your respective business so that when it's time to execute and, you know, whether that be making a sale or getting a new customer or whatever the thing is, like if you have prepared yourself for that, you'll execute, execute much better than you would have otherwise. So I think it's very, very comparable. Yeah, right. That's what's up. That's what's up. Well, I think uh, it's amazing how you like combined those three factors of curiosity, ambition, and work ethic. Like being able to merge what you were what you were learning from from playing football, for example, being able to translate that into I'm assuming the classroom and later on into business. And yeah. So you're like bootlegging CDs, you're bootlegging ringtones. You know, I'm just gonna say you're selling, you're selling shoes. Just gonna kind of leave it at that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Doing your thing, and then you said you um, parlayed that into Central Michigan is where you went to undergrad. 
Yeah, so I went to I went to Central Michigan. Um, I actually um, almost didn't even go to college, um, or at least not to university. I had a a job my senior year of high school. I was driving a forklift in uh, a, a grocery store warehouse, and I was in the I was in the perishable section. So um, I was basically, you know, it's a basically it's a big freezer. The whole building's a freezer. So I would have to go in there. I would have like a hoodie on a jacket, a ski mask, two pairs of socks, boots, gloves, like, right. and it was low key miserable, but I was making like 10 bucks an hour. And at that time in high school, like that, I felt like I was rich. Like I yeah. was making way more money than any of my friends. And because I had all these other hustles, like I was really just using the money I was making at that job as uh, you know, seed capital for my other stuff. Right. Um, so, but because I felt like I was doing so well financially, I'm like, why go to college? Like I could just stay here um and you know work this job and maybe go to community college and just make money like i don't need to go to school mm -hmm. i'm very glad it, it, that it you know it didn't work out like that but um long story short like some other things transpired i ended up going to central michigan um i started there as an entrepreneurship major um before you declare a major you kind of just like you know pick a major and right. take some classes and determine if that's what you actually want to do so i had picked entrepreneurship as the major i wanted to go into and I took one entrepreneurship class my first um, first semester, and it was a good class, but I was like, I kind of already know a lot of this stuff. And I was thinking about all the successful entrepreneurs I knew, and I was like, none of them even went to college. So do I want to spend four years of time and tuition on being trained on how to be an entrepreneur, quote unquote, right. um, when that's not like the typical path for entrepreneurs? So I ended up changing my major. Um, I double majored in marketing and supply chain. Um, I ended up taking a job at GE, um, my first job after college. Um, and it was one of those, you know, rotational, uh, leadership development programs or whatever. Um, and they pitched it as a sales and marketing program. And I took it because I, I really wanted to work in marketing. And then I started this job and it was pretty much all sales and no marketing. Mm. Um, so I did that. The program was 18 months. You graduate the program, you roll off into a full-time sales role. And I look up and I've been at GE for four, almost five years and was like still in this sales role. And I was looking around, I was like, okay, I, I don't want my boss's job. I don't want any of my boss's peers jobs. Um, I don't want any of these jobs at this company, to be honest. So there was really, <laughs> there was really no, nowhere, nowhere for me to go. Right. I was kind of just like trading water. Like I was comfortable or whatever, but from a career progression perspective, there was nowhere for me to go. So I decided, all right, I was like, I really want to work in marketing. Um, there's no, I don't want to work in marketing here at this company. So I started looking elsewhere and all the job descriptions I found were um, basically required me to either have five years of market experience, which I didn't have, um, or an MBA. So I was like, well, right. I guess <laughs> the, the choice is pretty clear there since I don't have the experience. So so I started looking at business schools and, um, you know, I went through the whole, you know, the process where we met and all that stuff, going, visiting all these different schools and, um, you know, ended up landing at Emory and, um, you know, fast forward, I, I went to work at Amazon. Um, this, this car idea had dawned on me at some point slightly before that and was, was working on that as a side hustle, um, during my time at Amazon and kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, it's getting a little bit too big for me to maintain it as a side hustle. So I had to make a choice whether I wanted to kind of put a cap on the potential of the car business at, at you know, in, in its state as a side hustle, um, it kind of put a cap on it, or do I want to leave this comfortable corporate job and, and take a swing at this thing full time. So I chose the latter and, um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to save up some money before I left that job. And I was like, look, I got enough money to, to last for one year. Um, and if I don't figure this out in a year, then I got to take, I got to go get another job. Yeah. Um, and fortunately I'm, you know, now I'm two years out and it's not looking like I'm going to have to go back. <laughs> That's what's up. Let's just, uh, speak it into existence. You will not have to go back, you know? Like, yes, sir. Um, so let's, let's, let's go back to, let's go back to, uh, Amazon. Um, yep. So you're there, companies like 
skyrocketing, right? It's, it's been it's been mm-hmm. on this like ridiculous run for twenty years straight, but I mean the past ten years have been just just astronomical. So so yeah. you're there in the, in the midst of it's like glory days, you know. I think you know who knows what the future holds, but it's it's a high probability we look back at Amazon, you know, twenty years from now, and this stretch from 2010 to 2020 is going to be a part of its prime. And so that said, you're there making six figures comfortable. What was the thought process like when you were feeling that tension between entrepreneurship and, I guess to put another way, a lot of people become crippled by fear when they're in that situation. So what, so what I'm getting at is how did you think about it to overcome the fear and the risk and to leave this, this comfortable job while you're working at one of the biggest companies to ever exist in the history of the, yeah. of the world or capitalism and, and you left your cushy job to go strike out on your own and try and build your own company? Like how did, how did you navigate fear? Yeah, I think for me, it was, um, it was mostly, I just had really like supreme confidence in myself. Honestly, like I felt like I was really good at, um, the work I was doing. So I was doing marketing analytics at that time. Um, I, I felt like I was really good at that. And I just envisioned the worst case scenario where I quit this job to do this business. And then like the sky, the sky falls out, right? Like everything goes to shit and I have nothing i have no leg to stand on in this little business anymore then what well the first thing was i saved up some money so i was i was good for a little while i don't have extravagant spending habits or anything like that you know i got little little uh, condo in downtown atlanta inexpensive mortgage no car note at that time or anything like that so i was like financially i'm gonna be good but if this business fails i'm confident that one, I'm just always confident I can figure it out. I feel like I can get out of almost any situation. But um, aside from that, I was like, I feel like I can just go get another job, right? Like, I right. feel like with my experience and my education and my skill set, I feel like somebody somewhere would be happy to have me. Um, so it was really, you know, just a matter of that confidence that kind of pushed me in that direction. And then also it was like, well, if not now, then when, right? Like mm-hmm. I had, um, no wife, no kids, um, no, no mouse, no dependence in, in any capacity. Um, and I was like, who know? like this, this could all be different, like a year two years, five years, however many years from now, um, when I don't have the freedom to just leave a job, right? Like where I, I have someone depending on me and I need to have that paycheck coming in. Right. Um, so it was a combination of those things. It was it was the confidence that I would be able to get out of that situation one way or another um, if if I needed to, um, and then kind of just you know the the lack of of anyone depending on me and um, the urgency around that right because that, that things can always change. So right. um, those two things kind of really pushed me in the direction of of leaving that job. Right. So I think I think what's really evident on the surface, and it's not to be undervalued or understated is if not now, when like, Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that happens from, uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, there, there are windows that present themselves in your life and they're not necessarily tied to an age, but there are just circumstances Mm -hmm. that exist in your life. And when they're present, it's like strike while the iron is hot, so to speak. And that makes sense. Like not having, having basically low overhead in your yep. life um, is the, is kind of the, the theme. So you're like, worst case scenario, you know, the bottom falls out of this thing. The amount of money I need to bring in on a monthly basis to cover my overhead is really low. So I can go ahead and make this happen. And that's the worst case scenario. You know, my cousin, she always reminds me of uh, this quote that goes something to the effect is, you know, what if what you hope for comes true? Right, as opposed to like think always thinking about what if it doesn't come true, like what happens if it comes true? And so you, you went out and you made you made that move. 
But the other thing I think that's a little less evident is you actually had some intellectual assets that you had acquired over time. So you talked about making the choice of going to school uh, to Central Michigan when you were thinking about not going. You went and you learned some things. You then spent five years or so. I I lost track of the exact number of years, but five years or so at GE building Mm -hmm. actually some skills in sales. And that's, that that's a skill set that should not be uh, underestimated on, on your resume in terms of mm-hmm. being able to go and get your next gig. And then you went on to Emory and then Amazon. So you compile all those things together with the fact that you've been actually hustling and making money since your early teens, uh, potentially preteens, like those, like that knowledge that you've acquired over all these years, if you were a business, they would call it IP or intellectual property. Yeah. That mm-hmm. You know that I can go translate this into X number of dollars per month if this startup thing doesn't work. So let me go give it a shot. Yeah. That becomes really important as well. You know, I think when we, when we started working more closely back in 2014, I was in a similar situation. I had a cushy job at a, really big company that came with a lot of uh, fringe benefits as well. I was working in the wine industry and I was like, look, man, the time is now for me to go try and make this startup idea I had work. And my overhead was low. Similarly, I mean, it, it wasn't Atlanta low because I live in California, but, uh, yeah. you know, relative to California, my other people in California, my, my overhead was low. So I took a swing at the fence and, uh, and, it was crazy. Is it actually didn't work out? It didn't. It didn't turn into Jack's ride share. But mm-hmm. when I had to execute my worst case scenario plan, I just went back and got a job at another winery. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. you know, and then I've gone on to work at several other companies. My career has continued to progress. So is my earning potential and all these other things. And I acquired so much knowledge and experience out of it. So I think the moral yeah. of the story for me is like. Don't be crippled by fear. Set yourself up and acquire uh, some experience and some, and some assets, particularly some intellectual assets that you can either use as an entrepreneur and or use to go get yourself another job if you need to. But don't be paralyzed when you have an entrepreneurial idea right in front of you and the life circumstances to pursue it. Go get it. Yeah, and I, and I also think like fear... So I think fear can do uh, like one of two things. It can it can paralyze you, so mm-hmm. so you get you get scared and then you just freeze up and you just don't know what to do. Um, but it, it can also propel you, right? It can paralyze you or it can p- propel you. So for me, it was also a little bit of fear. It sounds counterintuitive, but there was a little bit of fear that pushed me to leave that job because I didn't want to look up 10, 20 years from now and wonder like what would have happened if I left. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was, a, I was also afraid of, um, you know, ha- feeling like I had missed an opportunity or that window had closed because I didn't have the guts to, to do it at that moment. So it was also fear in addition to the other things I mentioned, mentioned that kind of helped me um, make that decision to leave that job and pursue this full time. Right. Right. Can you, do you, have you thought about it enough to be able to articulate exactly how you did the jujitsu move and like flip that fear into fuel? You know, because there's a there's a famous Jimmy Iovine quote on the Compton album uh, where I, I mean, there was a speech he was given somewhere, but uh, it was about how he used he's always afraid, but he's used fear as fuel to propel him forward. And mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of folks who come from where we come from, you know, the benefit. I mean, it's it's a benefit for those of us who know how to flip fear into fuel. Um, how how did you think about fear to where you can use it as fuel as opposed to something that, you know, uh, paralyzes you? Um, I have a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but when I get around elderly people, um, I like to talk to them about just their life experiences and um I try to ask sometimes in roundabout ways, like, you know, what they, what they would have done differently. Um, and 
I was talking to this um, to a guy I know in his eighties, um, and he was just talk. He was telling me like all these things that he wishes he would have done, or he uh, opportunities he missed because he, you know, either wasn't thoughtful enough, or you know, was afraid at the time, or or whatever the case. Um, and that that tended to be a common theme in. Um, and not even just elderly people, like some people my age or around my age, um, that, but that tended to be a common theme when I asked people about, you know, things that would change in their life or regrets they had or what have you. Um, it, it was a common theme that people would say, um, I wish I would have, I wish I would have. Um, and I just, I'm like deathly afraid of that. So um, anytime I have an opportunity to, to do something, to have an experience, to try something new, I'm going to take it. Right. Like if it's not putting me or anyone, you know, any of my loved ones or, or anyone in general in danger, um, then I'm going to take it. So in that moment, I felt like, um, one, I don't want to have this regret um, of not doing it. Um, and then two, leaving this job is not putting anyone in danger. No one, no one's depending on me but myself and I have enough uh, to take care of myself. So um, that was really it. Like having that talk with myself and reflecting on some of those conversations I had had. Um, I just knew that, that, that was the right thing to do at that time. That's what's up. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you, I'm glad you did it. And I'm glad that you have, have the insight to learn from other people's mistakes. Like not everyone is capable of doing that. And they have to, you know, my mom, she's always say a hard head makes for a soft ass. And that's, yep. that's, you know, country Mine wisdom, <laughs> yep. right? It's, 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 it's a threat for sure, but it's also country wisdom about, you know, being able to learn from other people's mistakes. When people are sharing with you knowledge, wisdom, experience, like learn from instead of going out there and uh, doing what you were told not to, or even you, you just see uh, life examples of like, hey, maybe you should do this and you should not do that, whatever it may be. Um, yeah. But yo, really quickly, before I let you get out of here, man, uh, have four four questions I want to ask you. Um, tell me a time, you know, and I ask this like of all my guests because I just love hearing these different stories. Because we, as black men, we all look at it slightly differently. But tell me a time in which someone went low, and you took the high road, and the fact that you took the high road, it actually turned out to be in your best interest. Um. So I would say that the, the most, uh, the most recurring instance of that to me was really always in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked in, uh, my first job out of college, I worked in, um, the energy uh, industry specifically, um, in construction, energy construction. So if, if you ever been to you, even like in an apartment complex, if you ever seen like the, uh, the circuit breaker box where if the lights go out or something, you go reset the circuit breakers. I, I sold those, but but also like all the larger stuff that leads all the way back to the utility company. Um, and it's really like when people talk about the good old boys club, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone who was working in that space, um, whether it was at GE or, you know, some, some uh, adjacency, all of those people had been working at an industry for, decades a lot of them had known each other since they were kids um a lot older uh older white guys for the most part um not a lot of women or ethnic minorities um so being in that space was already uncomfortable but also um there was a a few instances where basically you know you had your salary and then there was commission right and right um you had to go out and sell stuff to to earn your commission so um there were a few instances where I had uh, coworkers or you know people who who worked in the same um, the same office who would essentially try to steal steal commission right because mm. um, they knew these people that I, that we were selling to they knew they had long standing relationships with them um, and so essentially without going into too much detail these guys were steal a commission and, and, and it was made to be okay, um, right. by the higher ups because they were kind of in on it too, as well. Um, so, you know, I kind of, you say they, they went low and I went high, I guess in, in that instance, the, the going low is, is pretty obvious. Right. Um, 
the going high for me was like, look, I just got to keep my head down and do what I can do to be good at this job so I can get to the next, you know, to, to the next stepping stone, so to speak. Right. Um, so, so I did that. I mean, I, I think, um, a lot of times you find yourself in situations where people have unfair advantages and, and, and they did, um, in that essence, the unfair advantage was just the relationship and, um, kind of the lack of a moral compass from the, right. the, the leaders in, in that situation. But, um, look, it was, it was one of those things where I, I didn't have a lot of control. Um, so I had to kind of just put my head down and get through it. And, um, although I didn't enjoy it in that moment, I think a lot of that stuff kind of helped me to get to where I am today. That's yeah. That's a, that's a crazy story. Um, and I'm glad you took the high road. Cause I mean, you had the longer trajectory of what you were trying to achieve. And instead mm-hmm. of tricking that off, you know, you swallowed it, your pride for a little bit and then went on about your business and, and to a degree, like it actually was selfish, like yeah. in, in a good way, as opposed to um, indulging in your anger and like, you know, calling people out and yelling and whatever, whatever. Cause you know, you, what you said, like there, there was a lack of a moral compass for those decisions to be made and for those decisions to be allowed to be made. But yep. you thought about what was going to be in your best interest and moved accordingly. And I think that's dope. Um, let me, let me ask you this. What is your personal definition of success? Other people don't have to agree with it, but how do you judge yourself? And from what we talked about, I think what it, I know what it's going to be, but curious to hear what you say. What's your personal definition of success? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely freedom. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you probably knew I was, I would say that, but also, um, peace also. Mm. Right. And I think the two probably kind of go hand in hand, but, um, from a freedom perspective, like I said, I, I want to be able to, to have optimal control over my life. Um, so that looks like a lot of different, there's a lot of different types of freedoms, right? There's, um, freedom of my time, right? Cause a lot of people, um, we, we live in this culture now where people kind of like to brag about being busy. Um, and to me, that's like so corny. Cause it's like mm-hmm. being busy is like, you just don't have, you don't have time. Right. And that means like you're, you're basically broke for time. Yep. Um, so I never really subscribed to that kind of ideology. I think it's important to be able to control my time. And, um, you know, obviously there's, financial freedom as well. Um, so that, that ties in probably ties into directly into, um, you know, other types of freedom, but I just want to be able to control my destiny and do the things that I want to do every single day. So, um, that that's one part of it. And then the peace part of it is I I want to be, I just want to be at peace. Like I want to have, um, so much self-awareness and self-control, that the things around me, um, one, I can control the things around me, right? So I can not have things around me that are disrupting my peace, which goes back to freedom. Um, but also just being in a, in a space where even when there are things going on externally, um, that are likely to cause a disruption in that peace that I, I have such self control and self awareness that I can still navigate those, those waters. A lot of people, I think chase happiness, um, mm. and I think happiness is one of those feelings that it, it just, it's a fleeting feeling, right? So right. if somebody brings me a gift and I'm, I'm happy, right. But then the moment I forget about that, or I'm distracted from that, then that happiness subsides, right. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm unhappy, but the happiness is, right. is gone from, from that initial moment. Whereas peace, I feel like it's, you know, it's more, it's more about having, um, being even killed internally, right. So that things that happen, um, externally are, are not as disruptive to, to your life. So I would say freedom and peace are, are how I def- define my own success. Man. Oh man. I could, I could go on and on and on with like cosigns to what you just said, but I, I'm, I'm not going to, I, 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 I am, <laughs> I, I'll, I will just say this, that I, I do think the whole like Grind, 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 24-7, you know. Yeah. You know, tw- yeah, I, I just think it's corny, and it is, to use your word, and um, I think it's also covering up. Like, yeah, because, A, like, no, you're not working that, that hard that much. Right. right? <laughs> you're not. You're not. It's just like people being on social media and trying to show that their life is so great, and it's like, mm, nah, not really. But yeah. I think the other thing is if you actually were 
working that much, which mm-hmm. I don't believe anyone when they say they actually are, when they say they are. But even if you were, you're hustling backwards. Like, mm-hmm. like what is what type of life is that? What do you what are you hustling for? What are you working so hard for? And if you, yep. you know what I mean? So I, I think that it's important to kind of stop celebrating that because it's mm-hmm. not healthy physically. It's not healthy spiritually. It's definitely not healthy mentally. And we need to uh, make sure that we're, or I think it's important to promote ideas that are, that promote health. Um, yeah, agree. It's And it's just weird. It's like, it doesn't even logically make sense. Like nobody brags about not having money, right? That's <laughs> right. like, like if you're broke for money, like nobody brags about that. You want to try to find ways to change that. Well, people brag about being broke for time. It's just like, it literally does not make sense. So yeah, um, yeah I agree. I think just like that whole, that hustle culture has to die. Like, and that's not to say I'm against, you know, working hard and sacrificing because you have to do those things, but that those things that should have, a shelf life, in my opinion, you should you should do those things early on so that you don't have to do them forever. And I think some people are just so caught up in the idea of of looking busy or or seeming that they're so sought after um, that they make that part of their lifestyle. And I just think that's super unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the professional version of bling, so to speak. Yep, exactly. Um, so the next question, let me ask you this. If you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? Um, I would say, I would say uh, serendipitous. Mm, that's um, a great word. Yeah, I think um, so much of the the things that have happened in my life have um, been left to serendipity. Um, I always tell people like, I don't think I've ever gotten a job or got into a school or, or anything that I just submitted an application for. Mm. It was always because I happened to be somewhere and meet somebody and we had a conversation and we had things in common and they, um, maybe saw something of value in me and that translation that translated into another conversation, which ultimately ended up me, end up in me getting, you know, into a school or into a company or whatever. Um, but so much of my story, has always been um, serendipity, right? Even even me going, end up going to, to Central Michigan, I didn't go into all the details earlier, but I, I did say that I had planned on potentially staying home and working. Um, I ended up going to a friend, a high school friend's graduation party. Um, he had all the Central Michigan stuff all over his room or, you know, all over the party. And my dad was there also. He was like, well, why don't we just go up to Central Michigan and see what it's like? Like, we've never been there. It's an hour away. So we mm. go up there and I meet with an admissions officer, a black guy. Um, and he asked me my GPA and my ACT. And I told him and I left there without with a scholarship. I hadn't even applied <laughs> to the school. Uh, and it was only because my dad asked me to go to this graduation party from my friend. And we saw the central mission stuff. Right. right. That's just one example. But um, I think it's important just to be like to be open, be, be, be open minded uh, to go places, to meet people, because that's really how you develop serendipity. There's no real formula um, for the randomness that ends up being a serendipity that causes successes in your life. But um, other than just being open, being being places and meeting people, talking to people. So yeah. I think those um, that that word is kind of what I would use to describe my journey. Yeah. And I, w- I will I will add a, a slight I'm going to push back. Is that really the right word? Just like addition. Right. Because serendipity luck very very similar it's like luck yeah. is when preparation meets opportunity so there is no yeah. control or formula around the opportunity piece like these mm-hmm. things just kind of happen sit next to yeah. someone on the plane you go to this graduation yeah. party like all these random things that just kind of like come your way i mean shoot when you went to la when you're coming to talk to someone in the bay yeah twitter uh, at twitter you end up meeting your buddy hanging out with your buddy for a bit in la he mentions that he rents his car out. Boom. Like yep. that's the, the, there is no formula like opportunity piece, but then there's a mm-hmm. preparation piece, right? So you go back to your story around central Michigan. If you hadn't kept your grades up, if you didn't take the ACT or SAT and get good yep. grades, right? That's the preparation piece. Even when you didn't even know what you were preparing for, you know, I had a, I had a boy come to me second semester of high school when we were all 
finding out where we got admitted to for college. And I was like, yeah, I'm going here. I'm going there. You're getting all excited, you know, in the last, you know, three, four months of high school. And, you know, that's a whole Mm -hmm. just kind of one long celebration to begin with. And he was like, my homeboy came up to me. He's like, you know what, Neff, man? I want to go to college too. What I got to do? I'm just like, bruh, this is the last semester of our senior year of high school. You should have worked on this since eighth grade. Yeah. And at the latest, since 10th grade, like realizing just doing an audit of where you were and then making sure that you then took the classes in your junior and senior year to kind of make up for whatever you may have missed. But you don't figure this out in March of your senior year that you want to go to college. Like the preparation piece hadn't been done. So, you know, that's just my little add to your story. I do completely agree that you, there are so many things that are out of your control and you yeah. don't, you don't know when it's going to come. And some people call it fate. Some people call it luck or serendipity. Some people call it divine intervention, whatever it may be. But if you haven't done the preparation on the front end, you can't take advantage of it. Yeah, totally agree. You got to be prepared too. That's, that's one of the keys of serendipity, like any of those, those instances. And I have a dozen more examples, but, um, you know, had I not done some legwork, obviously I, I wasn't preparing specifically for that moment, but had mm-hmm. I not done some preparation, um, I wouldn't have been able to capitalize on those moments. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, it's really dope to hear like your story and how it's just continued to evolve forward and grow. Um, cause it's a, it's an amazing story. And before I let you get out of here, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hard realities that we have to face as black men that people can't even really sympathize with. You know, some people might mm-hmm. try and feel a little empathy for us, but they can't really understand. Um, but there's also a lot of dopeness in it. And so what I want to focus on is the dopeness that comes with being a black man. So what do you love most about being a black man? Um, I just love like our culture, honestly, just black, black, black culture in general, black American culture. I think, um, you talk about like building something like literally we built the most ubiquitous culture in the world, mm. um, from, you know, from dare I say nothing. Cause it didn't come from nothing, right. It came from Africa, but um our culture here is is different than than any other culture anywhere black or otherwise and um you know not to get like overly dark or whatever but like you know we came here we we were forced to come here as people and you know had language and traditions and faith and all that stuff stripped away and created something that everyone else in the world has has uh has attempted to partake in or emulate Mm-hmm. in one way or another um so to me like just everything about black culture like the way we talk the clothes we wear the food we eat the music we listen to right um the books we we write the films we make like all of that stuff to me is just like amazing that you know a few hundred years after we were forcibly brought here and made to work for free that we've been able to create this thing that that everyone in the world loves so that's really just my favorite thing like i just love being around my people and right. and being able to indulge and experience our culture together it's a it's a beautiful thing man it, it truly is and i actually just watched um the docuseries high on the hog on, on netflix i haven't seen that yet but i got that on my list of things to watch how was it yeah but it was it was good and one, and one of the things that i i dug was it was the food version of what you just said, like mm-hmm. you've done everything you can to like break us down and you gave us the scraps and even pieces of animal that you thought were unedible. And we're going to yep. turn it into cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's pretty impressive. Well, yep. I am, I am just honored and happy that you would, would come on bootstraps and share your story. I'm thrilled that you're in this particular chapter that you're in. And having all the success that you're having, man. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for us to connect. I don't know when's the next time you're on the West Coast or when I'm gonna be out in the A. But if we are if we are in the same city, man, we got to break bread and uh, and connect. But I'm I just really appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing your story with folks, brother. 
Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, I've actually never been to Oakland. I think Oakland is one of two cities left in America that I want to visit that I haven't been to. So um, I definitely um, I plan on doing that sooner than later. And I'll definitely look you up when I do. Yeah, for sure. You already know what it is, man. All right. I, I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take it easy. Peace. Peace. Yo, hope you guys enjoyed that episode and that conversation. I told you it would not disappoint. And I really want to appreciate you all. So far, the listeners of Bootstrap, you have helped build this into a really strong platform and continues to grow based upon your support. So if you haven't subscribed, please be sure to subscribe and share this episode around and let people know about Bootstrap. I think this information can really help aspiring young black professionals out there navigate this world and be successful so be safe and until next time peace